Well, I'd like to begin this morning with uh, a story, uh, an amazing story, really, of amazing uh, coincidence. Amazing coincidences just filled this story. It's a story told by uh, Pastor Kent Hughes. This is the Hughes family. Uh, He tells this story about his wife, Barbara, in particular. Uh, He was bringing his wife to the Chicago hospital near where they live for day surgery and uh, dropped her off and it was one of those, you know, sort of fairly minor procedures, expected to be there just for a short amount of time. Uh, He was waiting in the lobby with his eldest daughter, just making sure that everything was going well. And another person that they they sort of knew, a sort of family friend named Susie, happened to walk into the the lobby of the kind of the waiting area there. Susie worked at the hospital, but wasn't you know, didn't usually come to this area of the hospital. She just needed to use the ATM. They saw each other, started talking. Uh, she found out that Barbara, uh, Kent's uh, wife, was in surgery and said, you know what, I'll come, I'll come by later and bring her some magazines after I'm off my shift. They said, great. Uh, around 10 a.m., the surgeon came out and said, everything went great. Uh, we're just going to do you know, a few more things. In fact, you could, you could go and come back when she regains consciousness, if you like. So they were about to do that when uh, one of the surgical staff came out and said, actually, uh, we've had to bring her back in. Uh, There's something else we need to take care of. It'll be about 15 minutes. So they waited and waited. Three hours went by, and they were still waiting. And finally, uh, you know, the doctor came out and said, what actually happened is that we we nicked uh, an artery during the procedure. And so we had to go back in to try to fix it. But uh, the the problem is that we we can't get her to stop bleeding. She's still bleeding, and so we have, you know, we've tried to sew it up as best we can, and we have the nurses on it, uh, but she, she's, she's still bleeding. And so it was about the afternoon by this point, and as, uh, you know, the day went on, they realized thing, things were not getting better. They called a hematologist, called a kidney specialist, and by the middle of the night, Ken realized, I need, I need to let people know. So he called his immediate family, called some of the staff at the church, and said, can you please pray for Barbara? Things are not, things are not going well. And so they did more than just pray there. A number of them came to the hospital. So there in the lobby of this you know, surgical area, it was filled with friends and family, people from the church, all praying for Barbara, all you know, talking about it there to support the family. But she continued to decline. Her hemoglobin, which was 14 when the surgery began, was down to 4.9. She lost two-thirds of the blood in her body. Uh, her heart was racing at 140 beats per minute just to try to keep all the blood, that the little blood she had circulating. She was really not doing well, so much so that by the, by the next day, there was, the people were still there, still praying, but things were not looking good. Susie, remember Susie was, was finally getting off her shift. She'd wanted to come earlier, but was prevented, came at the end of her shift with the magazines, didn't know what was going on, and walked into the lobby area there and realized that this was really a, a crisis. This was a real you know, family thing, and she wasn't, she wasn't really family, and so she kind of turned to leave. She felt a bit awkward, but as she was turning, she overheard uh, some of the conversation, and the line that she heard from one of the pastors to someone else was, was, look, you really need to encourage Barbara. I mean, she thinks she's going to die. There's something wrong with her blood. It's not clotting, and Susie, a light bulb went off in her, in her brain because she had worked with Barbara's niece in, in the lab years ago. And when they were bored, they did blood tests on each other, which I guess is what you do. I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but she did it. And what she found out, she remembered all of a sudden that Barbara's niece, when they did blood tests on each other, uh, she showed the results to a hematologist. And the hematologist said, look, that girl better be careful. If she ever gets into a car accident, she could bleed to death. 
She has a rare blood disorder that means that her blood won't clot. So Susie dropped the magazines, ran down to her lab workstation, pulled up the old file of Barbara's niece and Barbara's blood work and realized it was a match. She had the same rare blood condition. So, of course, she called the doctor or called the hematologist, and they prescribed uh, something called cryoprecipitate, which helps the, the blood to coagulate, and, and, and all went well. From that point on, she stopped bleeding. She got better. She, she recovered to full health, to which many people said, man, what, what an amazing coincidence. What luck, right, that she would be there at that time I mean, just think of the amount of things that had to happen. Two lab techs bored years ago doing blood tests on each other, figuring out this thing. The lab tech, with the knowledge, comes to an area of the hospital she doesn't usually go to because she had to use the ATM. Then she returns at the right time to hear this conversation just so that the information could get to the doctors at the right time. That's luck, right? Coincidence? In fact, Ken Hughes, uh, informed by the Word of God, he he characterizes it very differently. He says this about it. He says, What happened to my wife and and to Susie is an empirically verifiable miracle of divine providence. Providence. The providence of God. The idea that God is not just... He didn't just create the world, kind of wind it up and let it spin on its own, but in fact, God has always been and is still intimately involved with every aspect of the universe. Every detail. Every person's... Everything that happens in our lives, God is, God is there. That, that idea, providence, is what we're going to talk about this morning. Because we find it in a number of places throughout the whole Bible, but in, in Proverbs in particular, there are some Proverbs that really get to the heart of what it means for God to be ultimately in control and actively engaged in our very lives. So, this is the wisdom that we are seeking this morning in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to read uh, uh, verses 1 to 9 from chapter 16. And then we're going to pick out the parts that apply directly to this, this idea of providence. Uh, the, the verses will be up on the screen as well. Here's verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps." Well, that's God's word, and you can see already in there some of the dynamics between God's plans and, and the plans of human beings. Uh, our plan for the sermon is to go through in three parts. Uh, three questions really are going to guide our time. Number one, what is the providence of God? Two, how does it work? And three, what good is it for us? What good does it do that God is in control? So we'll start with number one, what is, what is the providence of God? Uh, the word itself, providence... Uh, is not not found in the Bible, but it describes a biblical concept. It's a Latin word, and there's two root words in it, uh, pro, meaning forward, and vide, which means to see. And so you you would think that providence of God means that God can see forward, God can kind of see everything, which is true. That is part of the providence of God, but it's it's more than that. It's not just that God sees everything, it's it's also that he, he is involved in everything. He provides, he supplies for all the needs that he sees. 
And in fact, even though the word providence isn't in scriptures, we see this this dynamic of God being actively involved all over the place. Uh, I'm going to go back to Genesis 22 and just show you one example in the the Hebrew language that that communicates this to us. Uh, This is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember, God calls Abraham to take his, to Isaac, go sacrifice his son. And so here is some of their preparation in verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so you see that, that word provide. God there is actively involved in what's going on. But the interesting thing in the Hebrew is that that word also means to see. It could be translated, this whole passage could, could be, God will see for himself a lamb. And if you think about it, we use uh, seeing in that way sometimes. If someone asks us to do something, we might say, oh yeah, I will see to that for you. Meaning not just that I will see it, but that I'll do something about it. There's, there's an active engagement there. That's, that's the essence of the providence of God, that God sees everything and that he is actively involved, which is different than the way we see things. We see a lot of needs in the world, but very often we don't act for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, you know, maybe we, we don't know what to do. We don't have the power to change anything. We, we don't have the energy, the resources. There's a lot of limitations to us actually doing something, but for God, that's never the case. For God, what we see in Scripture and the idea of God's providence is that he sees everything and he is at work in everything. In fact, that's the, uh, the shorthand that I'm going to give you. You could, you could write it on your hand. Here's what, to understand the providence of God, two things. God is in control and God is at work. God is always in control and God is always at work. And again, in case you're wondering, you know, is this actually, like, do we see this in the Bible? I thought it'd be good just to look through a quick list, a partial list of the ways in which we see God's providential control, the things that God controls uh, in, in the universe. So we're going to begin, uh, put the whole list up there, and we'll read it through quickly. Uh, begin with nature, because nature has a lot of impact on us. What do we see about God's command of nature? Uh, in 1 Kings, we see that God commands ravens to go feed Elijah. They, they obey. Uh, in Jonah, we see that he appoints a plant to grow. The plant just grows up. And then he appoints a worm to eat the plant. We see that he sends a swarm of flies in Exodus as part of the, the plagues. God summons a famine and hail and locusts. We see that in Psalm 105. We see God whistling. He whistles for a bee, which I think is crazy. It's kind of fun. He whistles for a bee. In Isaiah, and the, bee, the bee obeys. The, the bee comes to him. In, in the New Testament, through the Gospels, you see Jesus and his control over the weather, over the sea. When it comes to nature, there is no aspect of creation that God is not absolutely controlling. He, he controls everything. It always obeys his command. But more than just nature, God also controls uh, things that we would call chance or luck. In uh, Proverbs 16.33, it says, God controls the casting of lots, which is like the roll of the dice. So what it's telling us is that every time anyone plays a card game or a board game, the roll of the dice, God is not just aware of what will happen. He's actively controlling what will happen. He controls all political powers. Daniel 2 says God sets up and removes kings from their thrones. We see also that he is in charge of all the spiritual powers. We've seen through a study of Luke that Jesus commands the demons and the unclean spirits and they must obey. The culmination of all this is found in Hebrews 1, 3, where it says this, 
He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's not just that he created the universe. He upholds it. He's in active control of every single thing. He sees and he acts. God is in control of absolutely everything. God is at work in everything to accomplish his purposes. That is the what of providence. When we say providence, that is what we mean. But there are other questions that come about, right? Well, what, how exactly does that work? I mean, I get it with the bee. He whistles, the bee just comes. But like with me, with human beings, what's the dynamic between what God wants to happen and what we want to happen? So that's our second question. And we're going to look at the bookend verses of our passage, verse uh, 1 and verse 9. We see there, uh, verse 1, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And in verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You can see the two layers of agency there. There's that of human beings and that of God. And you notice the word that connects the two of them is is but. It's a contrasting word, meaning we do have plans. We do have real desires. There are things that we want to do and choose to do. That's real, but, but ultimately, it is God who accomplishes whatever he wants in every situation, which means that ultimately, Our will is subject to the will of God. Proverbs 21 uh, makes this really clear. It says, The king's heart is uh, a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Which is a a helpful way to think about it because what it's saying is that the king still makes decisions, real decisions that, that affect the world around him. He has agency. He has a level of control. He has desires that spring from his heart. If you would ask the king, are you making a real choice? You'd say, yeah, absolutely, I want to do this. But what we see is underlying that. At a deeper level, it is God who influences the heart of the king. And so ultimately, everything, including our will, is subject to the will of God. Psalm 115.3 says it very simply. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. For God to be in absolute control... And for God to be at work, it means that his will is supreme, which again would make us probably wonder about some things. Because, I mean, what about, look, there's some questions that we have about the nature of reality and the nature of what it means to be a human if God is ultimately in charge and and everything has actually happened that he wants. So I want to get into some of the thornier questions that we might have about the providence of God so I'm going to ask three more questions and three, give three more answers. I know lots of questions. But I want to get to kind of the heart and for us to understand this, this dynamic of how this actually works. So here are some questions that people often ask as they wrestle with this idea of the providence of God. Number one, well, what about our free will then? What about our free will? What about the, the desire, the, the thing that seems good to us that we would be free to make our own choices? I'm going to give the answer right away and then explain it. The answer is this. With God... We are as free as we will ever be. With God, we are as free as we will ever be. Let me explain that. See, the the limitations of freedom, anything that we see, any examples we see in our world are generally negative, right? We would think that's not a good thing. If there's someone whose freedom is is being taken away from them, uh, we use language like they're being coerced, they're being oppressed, they're being abused. And we would say, and the Bible says that we should work against that. 
That in any situation where someone is experiencing that, it's because one person has decided that they are in charge and the other person doesn't get the freedom for their own selfish game. They're taking it away. They're hurting them. And the Bible says we should go and liberate the captives. We should go and bring greater freedom. That's true. That's right. But, but simply because we're called to help people gain greater freedom doesn't mean it's possible to live in a world without any limitations to our freedom. I mean, just think about some of the natural limitations that exist that keep us from doing what we want to do. There's a lot of them if you think about it. For example, when we're young, and maybe even we get a bit older, we, there are certain things we want to do that we are not naturally capable of doing. For example, we would love to fly, right? As a kid, I would love to fly. Or, as we get a bit older, I would love to be able to dunk a basketball. <laughs> In both cases, these are things that we want to do, but by and large, we are not able to do them. Uh, we, just can't, we just can't dunk. Uh, we just can't, you know, it doesn't work. So if you think about it, do we get upset in that moment? Do we say, look, I, I have free will. Do we assert our ontological and moral right to do whatever we want to do when we want to do it? We could. We could climb up on a roof, right? We could declare the free will that we have that should be ours, but that would be, that would be foolish. That'd be dangerous, we are naturally limited by the fact that we live on a planet that's spinning and doing whatever, I don't know how gravity works, but it, it's there, it's real, it exists. That's a natural limitation to our freedom. In a very similar way, God is a, a natural limitation to our freedom. Why? Because if God is truly a supreme being, then his will has to be supreme. If it's not, then he's not much good as a God. If he's a God that our will can somehow, you know, go above his and do what we want, then he's not a truly divine and perfect God. For God to truly be God, his will has to be supreme, which means that our will is somewhat limited. You might say, I don't think I like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's your, that's your choice. That you can have the real sense of saying, you know what, I reject that idea of God. I don't believe that that is true. And we would say, that is, that's up to you. That's fine. There are some people who might say, I don't believe in gravity. And they could operate and live their lives in that way. And we would say, that also is up to you. It's just, if you're going to go up on a roof, I, we would beg you to think twice, right? And in a similar way, if you were going to lead your life just ignoring, rejecting the idea that God is in control, again, in light of eternity, we would beg you, just, we'd ask you to consider that. Consider whether, in fact, there are whether in fact gravity and God are real, they exist. And if so, they have natural limitations. The interesting thing, though, is that with God, with an acceptance of God, there are greater freedoms than in rejecting him. For example, we have freedom from sin in a way that we would never have apart from him. We, we, have, we have freedoms that we're going to learn here, understanding God's control, freedoms of peace, freedoms of, of a lack of anxiety that comes from, from walking with him, even though... We accept what is, what is real, that there are limitations to our free will. So what about free will? With God, we are as free as we will ever be. Next question then, well then, why are we still judged? If, if that's true, if ultimately God's will is supreme, then why, why is there judgment? We see judgment in our text. The answer, sorry, the answer quickly is that, well, we are still responsible. Why are we still judged? We are still responsible. Here it is in the text, uh, verse 2. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. That language of the Lord weighing the spirit is language of judgment, which would make sense. If God is 
truly the, the providential sovereign king of the universe, then judgment would be part of that. It would have to be. And we see that in the text. Uh, there are human beings that think we're pure in our own eyes. We think everything's great, but God is the one who has objective sight, clarity about our moral condition. And he judges rightly. He judges everyone. Of course, again, the question is, well, well wait a second. If God is in control, um, like, why am I judged? And the answer is because the choices that I make have real implications. There's real responsibility. Sin itself is not birthed in the heart of God. It's birthed in the heart of human beings. That makes us responsible for it. Look at James 1, 13 to 15. We see this, this dynamic. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the origin of sin, that we ourselves, we really do want to go against God. We really think it's best to do things our way. We really choose to do things like, like hurt the people in our lives or steal or cheat, and we are responsible for those choices. So why are we judged? Because sin originates in our own hearts and we are responsible. Third question. Well, why then does evil exist? If indeed God is in control, if indeed this is the nature of reality and he, everything is by his hand, why does evil exist? The answer, I mean, the answer is big. There's a big question, big answer. The, the slice of the answer that we see in our text here is this, that evil exists to reveal the justice and grace of God, that there is purpose in the evil in the world. And what we see here in our text is that it, it reveals, it helps us to see the true nature of God in his response to evil. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 makes it very clear that evil is, is not outside of the sovereign providential control of God. It says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Think about that. Everything in the universe for its purpose. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. What it tells us there is that even, even the the wickedness of the human heart, even the fact that evil exists, is there not because God dropped the ball, not because he just wasn't paying attention, not because he had to try to figure things out after it happened. It was there for a specific purpose. We see in our text some of this purpose. We see the next two verses talk about God's response to evil. Because evil is there, it allows us to see more of God's character. So we're going to look at both these things. They are the justice of God and the grace of God. That's God's response to evil. Look at them in verses uh, 5 and 6. First, the justice of God. Everyone, it says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Now that claim is a claim that we've heard before. We hear it from police chiefs. We hear it from uh, principals. They say things like, look, we are going to capture all the criminals. We are going to hold them to account. That's our job. That's what we're going to do. Principals, Say the same thing. We're going to deal with the bullying problem in our school. And we hear that, and we always take it with a grain of salt. Not because we don't believe them, not because we think they have bad intentions, they're trying to deceive us, but simply because we know that it's impossible for them to really apprehend every criminal or every bully. There are breakdowns in the human system. They don't have enough manpower. They don't have enough wisdom. They can't find, they can't examine the hearts of the, the grumpy kid in grade seven who's given everyone a hard time. They, they can't. We know there are gaps in the justice system here on earth. And it, it, 
it grieves us. It should rightly grieve us, especially if we have been you know, on, the, on the wrong end of those things. But what we see here with God is, is a claim that is absolutely true. The verse there says everyone, and it means everyone. Every person who has an arrogant, prideful, sinful heart, God says they will not go unpunished. That claim, if you really think about it, is rooted in a sense of providence. That God, God controls everything. And that God is at work in everything. And so because of that, he can, in fact, assure us that every person who does wrong will be held to account. No one escapes his providential and sovereign control. This is meant to encourage us. Because there are many times when we feel like justice won't be served. We feel like they got away scot-free. There's so many times in school, if you listen to teachers, so the, one of the greatest complaint, the greatest grieved heart for every elementary school, middle school student is you're not doing anything about that guy who's bugging me. Who's going to do something? I've got a list of all the grievances. It really bothers kids, and it should bother us when that happens in adulthood and criminals are set free. Here we have the answer. In fact, they're not, they will not go unpunished. That because of God's providence, there is an answer for evil. But that's not the only answer, which is a good thing for us. Because in the category of those who have arrogant hearts, if we're honest, we have to put ourselves there as well, don't we? Which means that if God's answer, only answer to evil is justice, then we will all be under the just condemnation of God. But thankfully, thankfully, it's not the only answer. We see in verse 6 the other, the other aspect, the other way in which God deals with evil. He says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Iniquity is a sin, is evil. Iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, that's his character, that he loves not just those who are good, but even those who are sinful, even those who are do wrong, even those with arrogant hearts. And the response that he gives is that they will be atoned for. That's a really uh, churchy word, which just it means to pay the price. That's what we want criminals to do, right? We, we take them, we arrest them, we try them, and they pay a price. They're in prison for a certain amount of time. They pay a financial penalty, something to atone for the wrong that they did. The good news, though, is that God does not make us atone for our sin. It says there that our sin will be atoned for. Now, for the people back in the Old Testament times, that would have been a mystery. It would have been just kind of hanging. How? How could it be possible for my sin to be atoned for by someone else? How is it that someone else will pay the price? They could not conceive of a way in which this would happen, and yet by the time of the New Testament, it was revealed. The, the plan of God, the grace of God was revealed because, of course, God himself, Jesus, the Son of God, came down to earth so that he could atone for our sin on the cross. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved. He paid the price for our sin and in so doing revealed one of the most beautiful truths about the providence of God and it is this, evil is not the end that we think it is. Darkness is not the end that we think it is. Because at the cross, at the cross we see an example of the most heinous crime in all of humanity. Jesus, who created the universe, the perfect God was killed by the people that he created. There is no greater crime than that. And yet, 
that, that darkness, that evil, that did not win the day. I mean, just imagine, if you know a bit of Jesus' life and his stories, there were disciples, people following him. He was telling them, look, follow me. The kingdom of God is coming. They were hopeful. They were excited. And then he gets crucified. And, and darkness covers the land. You can imagine them at that time saying, what happened? Everything's gone wrong. Everything's horrible. Three days. They were, you can imagine them talking to yourself. What do they say? They've given up everything to follow him. They feel like darkness had won. But what the cross reveals is that darkness had not won. Jesus was raised new life on the third day. That was the answer. That was the goodness. And if we look at it carefully, we recognize that the goodness, the light was only possible because of the darkness. That it was through the evil hands of man that God accomplished what he said he would, which was that sin was atoned for. See, this is the beauty of the providential hand of God that we can know for sure that in every situation, even situations that right now you look and all you see is darkness, what we know for sure is that that is not the end. That God is at work. God is in control. And this is meant to assure us. This is meant to comfort us. And we've, we're already beginning to see the good that understanding the providence of God brings to us. Because that was our third question. What, what good is this for us? We already see it. It encourages us. It helps us to see everything in our lives differently in light of the sovereign plan of God, not just the, the momentary darkness that we're seeing. So let's, let's fully move into our third question, our third point, which is what, what good does it do us to know that God is in control? to understand the providence of God. There's a lot of good that it does us, but there are two things I want to highlight, two things that we see in this text, practically, that really help us in our day-to-day living. Number one, uh, the providence of God means we can find peace, and number two, we can find purpose. Peace and purpose can be ours in, in all situations. Uh, we see some of this in our, in our text. Let's look at verse seven. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And that's a pretty bold statement. I'm not sure if you have someone in your life right now that you would consider kind of an enemy or maybe at the very least a frustration or a hardship, someone who is making your life more difficult, someone at work that makes you not want to go into work, someone at home that makes it that you don't really want to go home, someone in your life that there has been friction, maybe someone in authority over you, that you're just there's such an anger and a bitterness welling up in your heart. Right here we see that when we walk in the ways of the Lord, when we understand in the context, the providence of God, that there actually can be peace. We can be at peace with this person. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because we see God's greater hand in the situation of our life. And to give us a really clear picture of this, I want to turn to a story in the Bible that you probably know, at least generally, it's the story of Joseph. Because if you know the story of Joseph, you know that, that he was dealt a poor hand right from the beginning. Uh, his brothers, he was the youngest of 12, and they hated him. They were bitter and jealous, very petty. So they didn't just hate him, they actually did something about it. They sold him into slavery. There was a caravan going by, they sold him for actual money. They told their dad that he was dead, and he went off into a life that he did not deserve, that he did not want. He found himself at the end of a whip. He found himself working hard, far from his mom and dad, far from his home, in prison, unjustly accused, a horrible life because of the decision of his brothers. By the grace of God, and the, the, again, the providence of God, 
Joseph didn't die in a prison cell. He was brought up to the Pharaoh's court because if you know the story, you know that the Pharaoh had a dream that he couldn't interpret and God had given Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. So all of a sudden, he reveals to Pharaoh what God wants him to know. Look, there's going to be a famine. That's what your dream is, Pharaoh. We've got these skinny cows, fat cows. That means there's a famine coming. Pharaoh sees the wisdom of God in Joseph and says, okay, you're the man who's going to prepare a nation. So jump forward a few years. Joseph is now in, in charge of all of Egypt, and his brothers are coming to beg for food. They don't know it's him. They think he's dead. And there's this amazing moment where Joseph has the ability to respond. The, you know, the situations are flipped. The roles are flipped. He's now in charge. He has the power. And let's look at his response. This is in Genesis 45, at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, listen to what he says, Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Now think about that for a second. If you were standing next to him and you knew the situation, you'd be like, uh, Joseph, what are you talking about? Of course they should be distressed. Of course they should be angry at themselves. Look, look at what they did to you. You should be distressed. You should be angry. This should be a moment where you take your fist that you now have. God has given you the power and you crush them because they, they ruined your life. But that's not what we see. In fact, what we see already is that Joseph is aware of something greater than simply, simply the, the momentary experiences of his life. He tells them not to be angry, not to be distressed because... He sees the providential hand of God. Look at the next verses. He says, don't be distressed. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now think about that. You see that the same language. This, the, the two levels of agency. He's telling them, look, you did it. You, you, there's a, a sense in which you, you should be responsible for your sin, but the bigger picture is one that God sent me. And because he sees the bigger picture, he's able to have a soft heart towards his brothers because it's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. It's not just about their evil hearts. It's about what God is doing. And the peace that comes from that is because he trusts God and he, he sees it. That's the beauty of the, of the story, of course. There were times when it would have been difficult for him to see it, like in the prison cell for two years where no one remembers he's there. But now by the end, he can look back and see, God, you were, you were doing an amazing thing. Think of all the lives that were saved because they prepared for this famine. See, for us, understanding the providence of God means that we, we know theoretically the big picture. We may be in the middle we may not see any light at the end of the tunnel, but stories like this, truths like we see in Proverbs, assures us, no, there is a light. There is a purpose. There is meaning. And so, and so we can have grace for the people who are bringing difficulties into our life. Like, just think for a moment. If there's someone that comes to mind that you're not looking forward to, to seeing tomorrow, remember the providential truth. That person is there in your life by the hand of God. And you were there in that situation by the hand of God. What might God be doing in that situation? Why is it that God has you there? It's not purposeless. It's not meaningless. There can be peace in your own heart, an answer to the anxiety you have, simply by knowing that God is in control. 
and that God is at work. It, it changes the way that you see all of the circumstances of your life. Now, the other thing we mentioned is purpose. Uh, we've already seen it a bit. We see the purpose with what was going on in, in Joseph's life. But I want to dig into this a little, a little more. I want to jump to the last verse, verse 9 again. The, uh, verse 9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is so helpful for us to understand because there are very, very often times when we find ourselves walking into a situation and we did not want to be there. In fact, we look at where we are and we think to ourselves, how did I get here? I had some plans. They did not involve this. In fact, if I could rewrite this last chapter of my life, I would never go here and yet here I am. I was, I was led here. I was drawn here. I, my feet are here. This is where I am. This is my circumstance. This is my difficulty. And the thing that we're tempted to believe is that this is, this is a mistake. This is wrong. We spend much of our time wrestling with God, saying, God, why did, why did you bring me here? This is wrong. I had such a better plan for my life, and now I'm here. How could you do this to me? When we think like that, we ignore the providence of God. We, we forget the character of God. That in every situation, we are exactly where God wants us to be and that he is in control and that he is at work. See, when the providence of God fills our heart and our mind, what it enables us to do is to look around and to recognize, look, every situation we're in, no matter how dark, it is filled with meaning. It is filled with purpose. And it helps us to ask better questions. Like instead of bitter, angry questions about, God, why am I here? We could ask God, what, what have you brought me here for? What is it that you're wanting to do? See, when we start asking these kinds of questions, when we start seeing our life this way, there are amazing things that God will do in and through us. And I wanted to end our time by giving you a story, a, another amazing story of another family, again at the hospital. Uh, this is a story of the Waters family. And this story is a story where the Waters family, Mike and Deb, uh, mom and dad, found themselves in a situation they never wanted to be in. They had five kids. And, and their youngest daughter, Corinne, was diagnosed with cancer. N not where any parent wants to be. And literally, they found themselves in the hospital a lot, a place they didn't want to be at all. Corinne uh, had a very aggressive form of cancer, uh, a tumor in her pelvis. This meant that she not, didn't just go through chemotherapy, but some very invasive surgeries. Uh, she had to relearn how to walk. There was some nerve damage. Uh, they, they would say that this year of being in and out of the hospital was one of the toughest, worst years of their life, of course. It totally disrupted their whole family. That many kids trying to get there and back, struggling with just the, just the logistics of it, not to mention the emotional weight of it. But there's something else that happened while they were in the midst of this very, very difficult year. See, because they spent so much time at the hospital, uh, they, they started to meet a boy. His name is Victor. Now, the thing about Victor is that he had the same kind of cancer as their daughter, Corinne. And he was similar in age. And as they, you know, saw Victor in some of the places they, they were at, that they noticed is that Victor was always alone. Uh, and as they started to talk to the hospital staff, they realized... Uh, he was a foster kid. He was, he was living at the hospital because there was nowhere else for him to go. There was no one there when he came out of a procedure, no home to, for him to go to when he was waiting between procedures. He, he, was, he was there and he was all alone. And so 
they began to talk with him. They began to play together. Uh, there's some pictures of uh, Corinne and Victor, right? Both going through the same, same cancer treatment. And, and the amazing thing that started to happen is for Mike and Deb, they started to, to feel that maybe God had brought them into Victor's life for a purpose. Like maybe all of his longings for, for a family was going to be found in them. And so in this year of the greatest hardship of their life, they started to sense a call towards adoption, and they ended up adopting Victor. So they had six kids, two kids going through cancer treatment. And the question that we would ask, rightly ask, is how in the world does a family going through that even entertain the idea of adoption? Like, how do you get there with all of the emotional weight, with all of the logistics, all of the worries about your, the kids you have feeling neglected because you're always at the hospital? All of the, the capacity of your heart is already maxed. How is it? How is it possible that you could do something this, this generous, this sacrificial, this loving at a time when you were just spent? And the answer is because they, they knew that God was at work. I want to read to you some words from, from Mike as he explained this, this whole situation. Here's what he says. He says, In the midst of having a daughter with cancer, and adopting another 10-year-old boy with cancer, we learned in a new way and had confirmed what we already believed, that God has a plan, that he is not surprised, that he is active, that he is continuing to work out his plans for his glory, and that all things will, in fact, work out for his glory. Do you see the connection there? Notice, this wasn't a new thought for them, this idea that God was in control. What he said is that that year reconfirmed what they already believed. That's so important. For us to truly walk through those valley times of life, we need to have the foundation truths about who God is and who we are. For us to know that God is in control, for us to know that God is at work, means that as we walk forward, we can have confidence. More than that, we can have our eyes and ears open to see what it is that God has for us. Because it may be something amazing, something that we would never even think of if, if our eyes were turned inward. If, if our minds were filled with thoughts of bitterness and anger and complaint, we're going to miss what God might be trying to do in us and through us. See, the beauty of the providence of God is that there is assurance that in every situation we can have peace and we can recognize the purpose that God is at work. We see there in verse 3, it says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. That doesn't mean, God, I'm going to make my plans and then pray a lot that you're going to make them happen. What it means is, God, I want for my plans to be your plans. Because when they're your plans, that means that I can walk forward and have the, the grace and peace and purpose that I long for. That's the beauty of, of our God. My, my hope this morning is that wherever you are, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's a, a difficult time, a hard time, whether you're struggling with some of these bigger questions in your life, my hope, though, is that you've, you've come to know God more and that we would all go from here with a greater sense of assurance and peacefulness that God, God is present, God is at work. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I'm, I'm so thankful to be able to hear stories about people who, who know you well and have walked faithfully with you. Thank, I'm thankful, Lord, for the waters. Lord, I'm thankful for their willingness, Lord, to, to lay down more of themselves to care for Victor. Lord, a boy who I'm sure was, was wondering if anyone really cared for him. And Lord, you answered his, his thoughts, if not his prayers, by sending him a family. 
God, the truth is that you are doing amazing things all over the globe. And Lord, you are very often doing the most amazing things in those times of darkness, in those times of hardship. And the only reason, God, you can do that is because you are involved in everything. God, I pray for each one of us here, Lord. Would you help us in those times of struggle where we really feel as if where you have us is meaningless, is purposeless, Lord. I pray that we'd remember Joseph, who was in that prison cell for years. And yet, God, you were working. Help us, Lord, to be patient. Help us to endure the struggles that you've brought us through with the confidence that you are, in fact, in control and that you are, in fact, at work. We thank you, Lord, for the truths of Scripture and for how they inform us. Would you encourage us more today? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.